0: I feel like starting out by saying, now for something completely different. Uh, uh, It's been wonderful to have such a a variety of of talks. And um, unfortunately, it's hard to come after a lot of cute puppies, so please bear with me. It's been a lot of fun talking to the students. And I've noticed that at each of the breakfast or dinner tables that typically there are a few of the students around the table who are interested in science. And some of the vibrations that I've picked up from them is that they're really uncomfortable with the idea that they might be expected to go out and make a scientific discovery. Or let's put it a little bit maybe more fairly, they're really in awe and perhaps scared about that possibility. And I'm getting the feeling that for some of them it may be driving them away from the idea of a scientific career. Now, what I think is going through some of your minds is that you're reasoning that making a scientific discovery must be about as improbable as Michael Jordan staying suspended about three yards above the basketball floor for about 45 minutes while he lines up the, the shot. And it's true. It is not easy to make a major scientific discovery. But really, that isn't the sort of motivation that I have or that most of the scientists I know have when they go into the laboratory. They don't say, I'm going to go into the laboratory and discover something that's going to knock everybody's socks off. Instead, what they really are in love with is the process of investigating natural phenomena, physical phenomena. They, they like the way and knock everybody's socks off. Instead, what they really are in love with is the process of investigating natural phenomena, physical phenomena. They, they like the way in which the experiments are done. They like thinking about those things. And to a large extent, they're just curious. They want to know, for example, in my own field of biochemistry, how does a living cell, how is a living cell put together, how do each of its individual parts work to make this incredible variety of living organisms that we all appreciate on the earth. So let me put this in a little bit more personal terms and talk just for a minute about our own discovery. What we were trying to do in Colorado in the about ten years ago was to investigate a process of how genes are expressed. Now I have to, I'll give you a very short course in molecular biology here. Um, genes made up of the double helix of DNA, are the permanent storehouse of genetic information in every living cell. The information from the DNA is transferred into another molecule, another nucleic acid molecule, called ribonucleic acid, or RNA, and in turn, that RNA serves either directly in a cellular process, like in protein synthesis, or serves as a messenger RNA, individual units along the RNA serving to specify the order of amino acids in proteins. And so DNA makes RNA makes proteins. In fact, that was discovered by Sidney Brenner, who I haven't seen, but I saw his picture in the um, brochure, so he may be around. So we were trying to study the first step along that pathway. We had a particular gene, and we were interested in understanding how that DNA was copied into an RNA copy inside of a single-celled organism. In the process of doing experiments on that system, we stumbled across a finding that wasn't what we were looking for at all. It was a piece of the RNA that was being made in that system was being rearranged in a very special way that I'm not going to take time to tell you, a reaction that's called RNA splicing. Now, that wasn't what we had set out to study. At all, it wasn't what we had written our research grant and gotten funding to to look at. So it's one of these crossroads that happens so many times in every scientific project that you have an opportunity at a given point to either stay on your original track or to allow yourself to get diverted. And of course, you uh, one of the nice things about being a scientist is that you're allowed the privilege of changing your mind, although you have to worry about whether it's really going to be a productive thing to do. So in this particular case, we decided to follow up, instead of our original idea of understanding the copying of the DNA into the RNA, to look at what happened to the rearrangement of the RNA after it was made, even though that wasn't our original goal. And it turned out that this was the first example of an RNA molecule which was able to rearrange its own internal structure. In other words, that RNA was able to catalyze a biochemical reaction, a function that had previously been thought to be restricted to proteins, although it took us uh, a very perplexing year of experimentation to convince ourselves that such a heretical possibility was really the truth. So this is an example of serendipity, in science, something that you've heard about uh, already many times at this conference. Uh, Scott Turo last night called it luck, but I think he was uh, selling himself short because there's a little bit of difference between uh, serendipity and dumb luck, and I think his story was also an example of serendipity. Uh, in the words of Louis Pasteur, uh, probably rather inaccurately translated from the French, Uh, Chance favors the prepared mind. So it isn't just that you fall into something lucky, it's that your whole training, all of your experience and your education and your hard work, goes into developing a way of looking at things, which perhaps is best summed up by the word intuition, which then, when you get an opportunity, when something really novel crosses your path, Perhaps it's crossed a dozen other people's paths, and they've stepped right on it and continued walking without noticing. But in your case, this wonderful thing called serendipity happens, and you notice that something novel is happening, and you take advantage of it. So many of you are going on to college this next year. Most of you. A few of you are are still juniors and have another year of high school before this uh, major change in your life. And I also sense from the breakfast table discussion a certain amount of concern on your part about what courses you're going to take, how early you should specialize. I think it's great for those of you who perhaps want to be scientists to not worry too much about just taking a lot of science courses right away, but this is a chance to broaden your educational experience, take a variety of courses, take some science, but also take non-science courses. Similarly, I would say to those of you who do not plan to go into science, our increasingly technological world demands that everybody who's going to be a good citizen know something about science. We read in the newspaper daily about complex scientific issues like acid rain and like global warming in the area where some knowledge of physics might help you understand these complex issues. Animal experimentation is a hot topic. Well, if you don't know about how medical research relies on animals for experimentation, how can you really judge uh, something about that complex issue, and on and on. So it's a good time to get a a really well-grounded education, and don't worry too much about specializing until later in your college career. Finally, I'd like to say, uh, this is a the coming years will be really be an excellent opportunity to start trying to find your own thing all of you students who are here have abundant talent in fact maybe you have a bit of talent in so many different areas that it's a source of confusion for you and the important thing is to find out that particular area where you really shine something that you love doing and that you're really not just good at, but something that you can do a really exceptional job at. In my own case, it took me quite a while to find that particular area. I liked science for a long time. Originally, I liked geology, I liked astronomy, and then when I got into college, I like chemistry at the level of book learning. I like to work out the problem sets and I like to read about chemistry. But when I got into a laboratory situation, I found that the, most of the areas of chemistry that I had loved so much in the classroom were not the way I enjoyed spending my lives. They had to, spending my, life. I only have one life. Spending my life, okay because they involved being tied down to very sophisticated machinery, which was constantly uh, having to be repaired. There was a lot of plumbing involved in the work, and there wasn't much excitement of getting results on a daily basis and being able to think about what they might mean and going back immediately and doing an experiment. The whole time frame of most of the chemical research was too long i guess i was too impatient to want to deal with it and so for me the awakening came when i learned about this sort of interface between chemistry and biology which has many names biochemistry molecular biology whatever where one can where the whole way in which experiments are done is on a completely different time frame you go into the lab you work hard for a whole day, and every day or so, you get some result that's fun to think about. It may simply, the result may be that you didn't do the experiment properly and you have to do it again, or it may be something a bit more profound. But that constant interplay between experimental results and ideas was very exciting to me. So it took me a while to find that. I hope that each of you takes the time to find that particular area in which you really excel. Thank you. I'm Steve Gubser from Englewood, Colorado. And I'd like to know, could your research shed new light on the origins of life? The origin of life argument goes uh, as follows. That prior to this understanding that RNA had catalytic activity, when people tried to think about how life would have started, they had contemporary organisms to think about, and when you look at any cell in our body or in any other living organism, you see that you need minimally for life, you need nucleic acids to carry out the information storage and the passing the information from one generation to the next, and that sort of information storage has always been associated since the 1950s with the nucleic acids. And then, nucleic acids by themselves seem to be inert. You need some movers and shakers in the cell. You need the proteins to actually catalyze the chemical reactions in the cell, the the metabolism of the cell, and also to serve as structural components of the cell. So you need both the genotype and the phenotype. You need both the information content and the function, so it would seem that the only way out of this dilemma would be to have coevolution of nucleic acids and proteins. But now that we know that one of the nucleic acids, RNA, can both be an information containing molecule and can catalyze chemical reactions, this leads to a possible simplification of these origin of life scenarios. Maybe at the beginning, there was only RNA serving both sides of of the required functions, and the proteins came along later. So at least it's an attractive idea, if not correct. My name is Philip Chang. I'm from Mobile, Alabama. And genetic engineering, I know, has a potential for a lot of benefit, but also has potential of being used for harm. Um, Are there certain moral guidelines you believe should be set for all um, biogenetic engineers, perhaps, especially when um, dealing with human genes? Yes, I I think that each scientist, I think it's a mistake to just rely on governments to set rules, I think every scientist has to take this responsibility for themselves. This was a hot topic, of course, when the ability to do genetic engineering, when the techniques first became available about 10 years ago. And there was a lot of discussion So far, there have been quite a few pharmaceutical and medical advances that have come out of genetic engineering, and I don't know of any, um, certainly there's been no hint of any ecological disaster that has come out of this technology. I have a feeling that part of it is the economic incentive, that if you can do something good with genetic engineering, you can make money. Doing something evil, uh, it's a little hard, harder to sell that. Uh, but I don't think that that can be used as an excuse for individual scientists not to continuously weigh uh, the ethical decisions of, of their own research. Um, okay, well, part of my question was what he just asked. But also, do you think the American public is ready to accept genetic engineering and its products? Uh, yes, I think they definitely are ready to accept it. I think that as we find for example, that drugs that might be able to uh, treat, might be able to either vaccinate against human immunodeficiency virus, the causative agent of AIDS, these will, both the research that's being done to fight AIDS and the development of the drugs is so closely tied to genetic engineering. I don't know if everybody knows that. But uh, it's already true that most of medical research, the vast majority of it being done today, is all based on genetic engineering. And I, I think that when it comes to questions of people's health and their children's health, that they are going to want these advances. And, uh, and as I said before, at the same time, they, of course, have every right to expect that the research will be done in a very careful way to avoid any possibilities of of misuse.